You didn't see that one coming, did you? <laughs> you know, the only thing, I, I would have felt even more comfortable, I'd feel like I was back in Virginia, <laughs> if we'd have had a banjo <laughs> or a fiddle, which we actually did in Virginia at the church I was at there. We had a little of the country flair to our worship, so that one had that beat going to it there. I was going like, well, I could play bass to that. It's cool. Okay. We're glad you're here this morning in our time of worship together. Um, we're in the third week of a series on the book of Philippians uh, called the Book of Joy uh, so often. And last week, I started by reading a verse. This week, I'm going to start by reading the same verse, okay? Because it was a hinge verse I shared with you last week, verse 27 of chapter 1, uh, that kind of hinges between what Paul says before that and what he says after that in chapter 2. And so I'm just going to read that verse, talk about it just briefly, and then we're going to jump into chapter 2. I had to kind of do a little editing today. There's too many verses to cover, and so you always have to edit what you're going to talk about. And I felt like verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2 is the most important thing I could talk about today because it talks about this whole thing of joy in Christ. Now, chapter 1, verse 27, this hinge verse we talked about last week just briefly, says this, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together, striving together, striving together. Okay, I said that three times. That means emphasize today. It's what we'll be talking about, how we strive together as one for the faith of the gospel. Now, some people, when they read that verse, the first part of that verse, when it says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. When they read that, sometimes we confuse that to mean that uh, salvation is something you kind of earn. So we strive toward salvation. But we know that, in a sense, this, this understanding of salvation suffers from a small view of salvation because it's absolutely true in Scripture, and we talk about this all the time at Great Oaks, that only Christ can forgive sins. And so coming to Christ is not about your striving for something. But this is talking about once you have come to Christ, what it means. See, our salvation is more than simply forgiveness of sin. It's also the creation of a new person, a new being uh, that lives in a new way in relationship with God and with others. And this is what this whole series is kind of about. It's about this issue of what is our priorities and what is our focus in life. Our priorities, Jesus first, others second, ourselves third, or yourself third. And that's what the, the term joy, we use that as a little acrostic. But the thing we learned in chapter 1, the first two weeks, is this. Paul had, the reason he had joy in his life was not because he had perfect circumstances or because he had everything else in life was perfect, because literally he had kind of everything messed up, if you looked at it from a world viewpoint. But because of his focus and because of his priorities, he lived life in a real way. Now, when I, I, this morning, it's interesting because one of the songs while ago was talking about, you know, our relationship with God like a marriage. I don't know if you caught that the, first, the second song, first song while ago, or second song I think we sang. Um, but I want to kind of talk about that in regard to this verse here because I want you to think of salvation in relation to a wedding day and a marriage. Because just as marriage is more than a wedding, it, can imagine this, you know, I go to my wife and I said, honey, I love you, I want to get married. So, and we have the wedding day, and a lot of people go, this, they just freak out over the wedding day. You know, they just go nuts over the wedding day. I have no problem with that. Yeah, I do. <laughs> we spend so much time planning the wedding day, 
And we think, oh, it's all about that. And then we get married and we have that wedding day. And what if you just had the wedding day and after that all you did is once a week you just kind of checked in with God? That's all you did. Or checked in with your, with your wife. If it, or with your husband. Just once a week, okay? Okay, okay. yeah, I have my wedding day, okay? And once a week I'm going to check in with you. Is that enough for a good marriage? No. The same way with salvation. It's not about, yes, it's important to know that we have a relationship with God, that we've had that, that point in our life where we said yes to Jesus Christ. But the key to joy in our relationship with God and to live in a worthy manner is, is best done in a sense by understanding that it's, you know, in our marriage, the, the reason I, I've been married for 37 years, I believe fairly successfully, is because that wedding day was important, but every other day after that was important too in my commitment to my wife. And every other day, once you say yes to Jesus Christ, is important in your relationship with him. And that was what will bring you joy. Not just simply being a person who said yes to him and you show up to church once a week and then you just kind of go through the motions. But it's like living in, in, in relationship with Jesus, with God, every day of the week. So Paul, in, in chapter 2, he kind of shifts gears. In chapter 1, verses 26 and before that, he was talking about the struggles he had gone through. And he was kind of talking about what it means to be a mature Christian. And he really didn't say it that way, but it was kind of gave an example of what it means to be a mature Christian, how you face the trials of life. Last week, the key verse is verse 21, which says, to live as Christ, to die is gain. His attitude toward life was th- such as that. Yeah, I live for Christ. I live for Christ every day, but if I'm dying, I'm dying as gain. And he had that attitude. Now, beginning with chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 27, and chapter 2, he starts talking about something a little differently, but he talks about another key ingredient to this whole thing of joy in our lives. And the key ingredient is the whole aspect of living in community with others. Remember, if chapter 1 was about God first, Jesus first, chapter 2 is about others second, or others next. And next week, Chris is going to share with you the last part, verses 13 and 5. I don't know exactly what he's going to share with you because we, we know. He's going to be covering chapter, uh, verse, chapter thir- uh, 2, verse 13 through 30. But the whole chapter 2 deals with this relationship, and it gives examples we're going to talk about today of how to live in relationship with others as well. And uh, I get the part today, verses 1 through 11, which deals with probably the supreme example of what it means to be in relationship with others and how it brings us joy in our relationships. Because the last couple of verses, which I'm not going to look at right now in chapter, chapter 1, verses 28 through 30, kind of talk about the stress of outside pressure. But also Paul says that in chapter 2, he talks about how we should pursue attitudes and actions within the body of Christ in order to overcome division and why that brings us joy. So let's begin with chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. If you have your Bible, Philippians is about 90% of the way through the Bible, Okay. Uh, it's pretty far along in the New Testament. It's one of those letters that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. He probably had, uh, and if you haven't been here, he's, he was probably wrote this letter probably 10 to 15 years after uh, the Philippian church had been established by Paul. We read about that in Acts chapter 16. And then what had happened from there is he's now in, in, in house arrest in Rome. And under that arrest, he gets a, a, a visit from a friend, a guy named Epaphroditus, who comes and and he tells him what's going on, and so this is what he writes. He says to the Philippians, he, to his good friends, he says in verse, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, therefore, if any of you 
have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. He said, if you have any of these things, let me explain something to you here. He's not saying this is like if it might possibly happen. He says, since you are Christians, followers of Christ, if you got this, it's kind of like saying, if you have this, what you do, then, he says, then make my joy complete by being several things, like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. See, the encouragement here, what's the encouragement he's talking about? He said, first of all, the encouragement he says that we can have in Christ is this, that all of us, you know, and, and remember when we first started this series, if you weren't here, remind you of this in Acts chapter 16. There were three very diverse people who started the who, who were the first believers in the uh, Philippian church. There were a lady, lady named Lydia who was a wealthy person. There was a, a lady, uh, another young woman who was a whack job. Okay, she was. She was crazy. She was. Read about it. I mean, she had demons in her and all kind of weird stuff going on. And then the third person was this kind of like middle-class jailer dude who was kind of gruff and rough around the edges. There were the guys. And so, you know, the, the first part of encouragement is this, is that all, we, all of us can be saved in regard, regardless of our background, our aptitude, our sin, our family history. When we are saved, we are saved not because of who we are and what we've done, but we're saved by grace. And grace implies is a word that can mean in spite of. We're, we're saved in spite of so much. He said, that's great encouragement because it means that anybody, everybody has the opportunity to have a relationship with God, have salvation in their lives. And then Paul continues, is there any comfort in love? Sure. Real love brings us comfort. Real love, unconditional love of God means we can have eternal comfort from the love of God. And then he says, if you're encouraged by Christ's salvation, if you received any comfort from the Father's love, if you've received the Spirit's empowering presence in your life, uh, you, he says this, go all the way is kind of what he's saying. Go all the way in the Christian experience. Don't just experience a little bit of it. Go all the way. And this is what he means when he's urging them to say, complete my joy. And we go all the way by living in unity, he says, with each other. That's where he begins this, this chapter, loving each other and working together to exalt Christ. It's kind of what he said in chapter 1, and I'll just repeat it again. He says this, in a sense, he's been saying, if the gospel is true, and it's true in your life, your life should look like it's true. You should live out the gospel. And so he begins to talk to him about what that means in regard to relationships with others and having joy in our lives. See, what, what Paul understands, and I think all of us understand, is this. The wrench and the gears of Christian unity is individual self-interest and pride. That messes up everything. See, the fact is this. People can rob you of your joy. Can it, is that true? People can rob you of your joy. You ever been having a good day and something bad happening because it's somebody that interacts with you, a family member, or a person that works, something like that, and the rest of your day you're going around grumbling. And you're angry, or you're frustrated. And 99.9% .9 of the time, it's a person that does it to us. You know, I could get mad at my computer, but I just shut it off and leave. <laughs> I can't do that with people. I can try. Doesn't work too well. See, 
But what had happened with Paul is this. Right before this, like I said, there was this guy named Epaphroditus who had brought a generous gift from the church in Philippi to Paul in prison. And the good news of the churches, and he, he talked about the good news of the church's concern for Paul, but he also brought some bad news. And the bad news he brought uh, was twofold, and we've already learned a little bit about this, but we learned more about it in chapter 3 and chapter 4, that there was two other issues in the church. The tr- there was a double threat to the unity of the church. First of all, in chapter 3, we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, there were false teachers coming in from without, which was messing up the church. So number two, uh, there, was, there was a couple of ladies who were having a disagreement. We'll learn about that in chapter 4. These two ladies, uh, Eudea and Synthike. I can't pronounce her name. I don't know how to pronounce her name perfectly. But uh, they were having a problem. We don't know what their problem was. We'll talk about that later. Uh, you know, we don't know if they both wanted to be the chairman of the women's ministry or something. You know, I don't know what the deal is here in the church, but they were having some issues and it was causing some problems in the church. And didn't I tell you before that this was one of Paul's favorite churches, probably the most mature church of all? But it wasn't a perfect church. It was a maturing church. That's why I like to use that term instead of mature. Mature means you've arrived. Maturing means you're going there. And so that's what's going on. See, and one thing that Paul wanted to talk about, help him to understand is this. The true spiritual unity comes from within. It is a matter of the heart. So uniformity is a matter, is a, is a result of pressure from without. This is why Paul opened this section appealing to the highest possible spiritual motives. And so he says, since you guys are in Christ, you know Christ, you have Christ as the center of your lives, He said this ought to have encouraged them to work together toward unity and love. Because he understood that that unity and love comes from the heart. One of my favorite, and I just want to, it's kind of a side issue, but it's also something important here to understand. It's kind of once again about marriage. One of my favorite resources recently I came across was something you all have access to for free. It's a a book, and uh, it's an audio book and stuff by a guy named Francis Chan and, and his wife Lisa Chan. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a book and an audio book called uh, You and Me Forever. Now, it's, a, it's about marriage. But it's the, only, it's the most unusual marriage resource you'll ever hear because when you get in there, it's not about how to communicate better with your spouse. It's nothing about that. What it's about, it's about our relationship with Christ and how that affects our relationship with God. And you all have access on right now, media, you have access to the small group resources. And you can actually go on an app. I guess it's in Android as well. But on, in the app store, you can go and download uh, uh, the, uh, the app, which gives you the uh, ebook and the audio book for free for that resource. So I just gave you a free resource today, okay? Uh, but the thing is cool about that is that it's really about that. And I began to think about that because Paul talks about this whole thing of unity coming from the right relationship with Christ. And it was something within that changed in them. And the reason that Francis and Lisa Chan talk about it the way they do, they realize that we can talk about communication and all the other things all day, but if our heart is not right toward God, our marriage is going to be screwed up. I'll tell you, every time, every time over the last 36 years of my ministry that I've talked to somebody and they've come to my office and they're dealing with marriage issues, I can tell you it's always related to something called selfishness. Every time. And it goes both ways. Okay? Just lay that out there. And so Paul says here, hey, if you want to have joy in your life, here's a a clue. There can be no joy in the life of the Christian who puts himself or herself above, above others. Just doesn't work. 
See, last week, in the last two weeks, we talked about the secret of joy in spite of circumstances, as Paul talked about, is the, and I will call it the Jesus-focused mind. The, the single-minded focus upon Jesus. Jesus first. But as we'll learn this week and next week and the weeks ahead, the secret of joy in spite of people, in spite of people, is the others-focused mind. Jesus first, others second. So, it begins, uh, it begins in a real sense, he, he's already talked a little bit about it, but in verse 3 and verses 4, this is what he says, Paul says next, and this is the key verse today, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourselves. You hear what it said? Value others above yourself. Jesus first, others second. Not looking to your own interest, but to each of you to the interest of the others. See, in Philippians 1, it's Christ first. In Philippians 2, it is others next. See, Paul, the soul winner in chapter 1, becomes Paul, the servant in Philippians 2. So, we need to look at, for a few minutes, the, the key idea here. And the key idea, in a sense, is we have to understand something about when it says, when Paul says here, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility. Now, what does the word humility mean? Back in September, we did a series on, on the one another's of Scripture, and I kind of hit this back then. But I want to hit it again today and look at it a little bit different way. Humility means that the humble person is not one who simply thinks less of themselves. One writer said it this way, the humble person is the one who just doesn't think of themselves at all. That's not the first, it's not, even a, it's not even one of the high priorities on the list when Jesus is first and others are second. You're way down the list. See, humility is the grace that when you have it, you think you have it, you've lost it. See, the truly humble person knows himself and accepts himself. I would call it a mature, a person mature emotionally. He yields himself to Christ to be a servant, uh, to use what he is and has for the glory of God and the good of others. See, others is the key idea of this chapter. Now, the others-focused mind, we'll talk, use that phrase today as we talk about this, does not mean that the believer is the beck and call of everybody else. But they're a doormat for everybody else. Some people try to make friends and maintain unity by giving in to everybody else's whims and wishes. This is not what Paul's suggesting at all. The scripture in 2 Corinthians 4, 5 says it perfectly. It says, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. See, if we have the Christ-focused mind of chapter 1 of Philippians, we will have no problem with the other-focused mind of chapter 2. It goes that way. So Paul gave, and like I said, in chapter 2, he gives these examples. He gives four. Now, Chris, I don't know what you're going to talk about, but you actually have three different people in yours. you got Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus next week. In the next verses. You can figure out how to do that, okay? Today I get to give you the supreme example in Scripture, though, of what it means to have the others-focused mind. And guess who it is? It's Jesus Christ. So let's look at verses 5 through 11 for a few minutes. And in this, I want to point out four things, four characteristics that Jesus had of the person with the other's centered mind, the other's focused mind. 
Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. It says this, in your relationships, it's talking to all of us, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset or the same mind as Jesus Christ, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Basically, that says this. First, the first point is this. The person, Jesus Christ being the example that has the other's focused minds, simply thinks of others, not himself. See, the mind of Christ means the attitude Christ exhibited. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. After all, doesn't um, outlook determine outcome? What we think is what we feel, what we do. So if the outlook is selfish, the actions that you have will be what? Divisive? Destructive? If you want to know more scriptural background, let's go to James chapter 4 and read the first 10 verses of chapter 4. You can write that down and read it later, okay? But it's another thing that James talks about, the same thing I hear about this destructiveness about our attitude. The person who is in Christ thinks of others before they, themselves. See, it's really interesting to me that certainly as God, Jesus was God. We understand that in scripture. He wasn't just a separate being. He was God incarnate, God in flesh. As God, did Jesus Christ need anything? He had everything he needed. But Philippians 2.6 states an amazing fact. He did not consider his equality with God as something to be selfishly to be held on to. Jesus did not think of himself. He thought of others. His outlook or his attitude was this. It was that of unselfish concern for others. So uh, the mind of Christ is the attitude that says, I cannot keep my privileges for myself. I must use them for others. And do this, and to do this, I will gladly lay them aside and pay whatever price is necessary. That was the attitude of Christ. That's the first thing that a person who has the mind of Christ, a person who has others focused, others centered mind, has. I was reading a lot of different commentaries this week, and Warren Wearsby has one called the B Commentaries. I don't know if you've read those or not or seen those. It's a great little basic commentary. But in there, he had a couple of stories I'm going to use today. One of them applies to this. Uh, Warren Wisby was talking about in there, he said this, a reporter was interviewing a successful job counselor who had placed hundreds of workers in their vocations quite happily. When asked the secret of his success, the man replied, and this was interesting, if you want to find out what a worker is really like, don't give him responsibilities, give him privileges. I'm going like, Really? That sounds really weird. Then he said, most people can handle responsibilities if you pay them enough. But it takes a real leader with the right kind of heart to handle privileges. See, a leader will use his privileges to help others and build the organization. A lesser man will use privileges to promote himself. Think about that. Jesus had every right, he had every privilege there was. He was God incarnate, but he chose himself. He had the attitude that he was not going to use the heavenly privileges for himself. He was going to use it for the sake of others. See, we expect non-Christian people to be selfish and grasping. I do. I don't expect, you know, I, I, maybe I'm just, I don't know, crass, um, jaded, Maybe that's a good term. But I really don't expect people to be, you know, unselfish outside of Christ. 
But in Christ, we have, we have the Holy Spirit within us, which allows us to, it makes us different. When we, come, we have salvation, we're not just saved for heaven. We're saved upon earth, and it changes who we are. It changes our, our identity in a real sense. See, others is the key word in the vocabulary of the Christian who exercises the other-focused mind. The second, the second thing that, that it talks about here in Philippians, the second characteristic of Jesus that tells us about what it means to have an other-focused mind is this in Philippians 2.7. Rather, he said, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. The second one is this. He serves. The person, Jesus, the person who is others-focused serves. See, thinking of others, and even though the, the first thing is we think of others uh, before ourselves, you can think of others all day long. That's kind of abstract. The nitty-gritty is what? Is actually serving others. Going the extra mile. See, Jesus thought of others and became a servant. When Christ was born in Bethlehem, we just celebrated Christmas not long ago, he entered into a permanent uh, union with humanity from which there could be no escape. He willingly lowered, humbled himself so that he might lift us up. Jesus did not pretend to be a servant. He was not an actor on a stage playing a role. He actually was a servant. And if you will look, and if you want to take time to look at this, and those of you who know Scripture know this to be true already, if you look at the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which describe the life of Jesus, you will see that Jesus constantly served others. Very rarely did anybody serve Jesus. He served all kinds of people, fishermen, harlots, tax collectors, the sick, the sorrow. He served everybody. Uh, Matthew 20, 28 says this, Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and he gave his life as a ransom for many. And we see example after example of this. One was in the upper room with his disciples right before he was to die upon a cross. And when his disciples apparently refused to minister to one another, Jesus arose, set aside his godliness, and humbled himself to wash their feet. He wasn't above. He didn't place himself above everyone else. He had an others-centered, focused mind. And because of that, Jesus experienced joy. Another example that Warren Wisby gave in his book was a historical illustration. I love history. I don't know if you guys like history or not, but I love history. Uh, you learn so much from it. Bill Trout loves history. He's some, uh, he, he teaches it, you know, uh, in school. And, uh, and, and this was a great one. I already knew this one, but I, 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 I was reminded of it again. During the American Civil War, there was a guy named General George McClellan. And he was put in charge of the... Uh, Great Army of the Potomac, mainly because public opinion was on his side. He was a very charismatic, very, very, very outgoing guy that people thought, oh, he looks great. You know, it's kind of like uh, Saul of Scripture. And he fancied himself to be a great military leader and enjoyed hearing people call him a young Napoleon. That's kind of the guy he was. <laughs> he was kind of full of himself. However, his performance was less than uh, sensational, but President Lincoln was pressured into commissioning him general-in-chief, hoping that maybe he, if he played into his pride that he would, he would get, him, get some action. But still McClellan, if you read history, procrastinated. And one evening, uh, I think Lincoln had had enough, he decides to go, two, he and two of his staff members went to visit McClellan uh, 
only to learn that he was at a wedding. So the three men sat down, the president of the United States and two of his advisors sat down at his house, waiting for McClellan to, to show up. An hour later, the general arrived home, and without paying any attention to the president, McClellan went upstairs, did not return. Half an hour later, Lincoln sent the servants to tell McClellan that the men were waiting. The servant came back to report that McClellan had gone to bed. Woo! Now, his associates were infuriated. But you know what Lincoln did? Lincoln merely got up and led the way home. And he said this. This is recorded in history. This is no time to be making points of etiquette and personal dignity. I would hold McClellan's horse if he will only bring success to our nation. See, this attitude of humility was what helped to make Lincoln a great man and a great president. He was not thinking of himself. He was thinking of others, of of others first. He had this others centered focus in his life. Service is the second mark of the other's focused mind. Third one is in Philippians 2.8. It says, being found in appearance as a man, talking about Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now this is the one we don't like to hear. Okay, just be honest with you. I don't like to hear this one either. That the person who is others centered, others focused, are called upon from time to time to make sacrifices. See, many people are willing to serve others if it doesn't cost them anything. But when we're others focused, it may cost, we may have to pay a price. And so it says that Jesus became obedient unto death, even the death on the cross. His was not the death of a martyr. His was the death of a savior. He willingly laid down his life for the sins of the world. Uh, One one, um, theologian um, said it this way, ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. I love this illustration I read somewhere um, that a religious festival in Brazil, a a missionary was going from booth to booth examining the wares. I've never been to Brazil, so I don't know what it's like there anyway, but this was many, many years ago. And he saw a sign above one of the uh, booths and in, in, in Portuguese, I'm going to slaughter the Portuguese right now, okay? It said this, cruces mais baratos, which means, I understand, cheap crosses. And he thought it to himself, that's what many Christians are looking for these days, cheap crosses. And he thought to himself, my Lord's cross was not cheap. Why should mine be? See, the person with the other's focused mind does not avoid sacrifice in their life. He lives for the glory of God and the good of others. And if it means paying a sacrifice from time to time, folks, we do not understand this whole concept in our our culture. We live in an area where being a Christian simply means maybe somebody might not like me. Or they may talk bad about me. Or they may shun me. Or they might not give me promotion at work. That might be the worst thing that would happen. But very rarely are you going to have the type of sacrifices that Jesus was called upon or even Paul was called upon to do or people in certain countries in our world are called upon to do. But the amazing thing is this. It's one of the paradoxes of the Christian faith that the more we give, the more we receive. And I've heard story after story after story. Uh, The book that you, you shared about 
few weeks ago, I'm trying to remember, called The Insanity of God, I think is what it is. I haven't read the book yet. I got it on my iPad. It's right here. But somebody else told me in small group they'd read it, and I'm going like, wow. It's about how people sacrificed for God, in a sense. And the thing is, I've heard stories over the years from all kinds of people in other countries and places that they've sacrificed great sacrifices for God. I remember hearing Elizabeth Elliot years ago talk about her husband who sacrificed his life for God on the mission field and other things. But they were people that had, and let me tell you, every time I hear one of these stories, it's, it's, it's weird. Because all these people that understand they've been through it, they've got off the other end, they're experiencing joy. Because they don't only share in Christ's joy, they shared his sufferings. And, and, and doing that changes their lives. See, sacrifice is never measured. Uh, for the person who uh, sacrificed, if they talk about it all the time, you know, they're probably really, they haven't really gotten it yet. But the person who constantly talks about sacrifices does not have the other's focused mind. They have their, they're, they're trying to get joy themselves. I mean, they're trying to get recognition themselves. And when people would share this in the past, they simply would share, this is what Christ has done in my life. And they saw it as joy, not as a sacrifice. So the question is this, that comes from this, if you have the other's focused mind, is it costing you anything to be a Christian? Is it costing you anything to be a Christian? Do you have to make choices at work? Do you have to make choices in, the, in your community? Do you have to make choices with friends? Do you have to make choices about finances? Do you have to make choices in life that cost you something because of your belief in Christ? The other's focused mind means that's going to happen in our lives. That's, that's a paradox of the Christian faith. The more we give, the more we receive. Finally, the last part, the last thing, the last characteristic we read in verses 9 through 11, it says this. Therefore, wrapping this all up, therefore God exalted him to the highest place, talking about Jesus, and gave him the name that is above every name, that to the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory, to the glory of God the Father. See, the third thing, that, a fourth thing that happens when, when we have the other's focused mind is when we, we go through these others and, and we deal with that, what it does eventually is it doesn't necessarily bring glory to me, but it brings glory to God. See, that's the goal of every one of us. It should be our goal in the Christian life is not simply to live an easy life, but to bring glory to God. See, Paul warns us about, against selfish ambition and vain conceit. The kind of rivalry that pits Christian against Christian and ministry against ministry. And, and he says these are not spiritual. There's not even Christian, nor is it satisfied. It is vain, he says. It's empty. But when Jesus humbled himself for others, what did God do? He exalted him. He lifted him up. And the result of this exaltation is glory to God. Even on the cross, uh, Jesus, as he was hanging on the cross, the Bible says that the glory of God was utter, up, uppermost in his mind. In John 17, 1, it says this. After Jesus said, as he, was, he looked toward the heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may what? Glorify you. See, the work of salvation in our life is much greater than simply the salvation of a lost soul. It is as wonderful as that is. Our salvation has its ultimate purpose to bring, to bring glory to God. 
See, the person with the other-centered mind, as he lives for others, must expect sacrifice and service. But in the end, it's going to lead to glory. 1 Peter 5, 6 says it this way, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. So, what does all this mean? Let me conclude with this. Who of us doesn't struggle with pride? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. Okay? Because if you don't raise your hands, that you don't struggle with pride, I, I, I'll consider you a liar. Okay? Because I know all of us struggle with pride. It's part of our sin nature. So just admit it. Just admit it. Okay? That's the first step to freedom. Pride constantly invades our thoughts and too often guides our words and our reactions. So what does the Bible say we're to do? What does Paul say? What, what does the scripture say we're to do? If I have pride, it's kind of strange. He says, act humble. Act humble? I mean, I can't make myself feel humble, but I can act humble. See, don't wait until you feel humble. Just choose to act humble, whatever it means. And you're going, isn't that hypocritical? Well, no, it's not. It's being obedient because God commands you to act with humility. It's what he just said. So it's the right decision no matter what you may be feeling. Don't even try to feel humble. Humility is not aware of itself. And if you're trying to feel humble, you're going to become so aware of yourself that you're not going to be humble anymore. It's kind of weird. But that's the way it works. See, humility is, it's, this is what humility is. Humility is throwing your selfishness away in complete concern for someone else. And I, I don't know about you, but imagine for a moment the incredible freedom of humility. Which will bring incredible joy. What I mean by this, if you were free from the need to be noticed, you know, this morning, I mean, how, many, how, how many of you took more than two and a half minutes to figure out what you're going to wear this morning? Because you wanted to make sure people noticed you. Now, you didn't say that in your mind, but you want, well, at least not, not look at you like weird, you know? I got to stand in front of you. I, gotta, I had to pick up my outfit last night, you know? My wife does not pick up my clothes, by the way. I do, okay? I don't know what that means. People keep asking ask me that. You, your wife dresses you nice. I'm like, my wife has never dressed me my whole life. <laughs> that shows how vain I am. Okay. <laughs> but the freedom of humility is being free from the need to be noticed. It's also being free from worrying about which seat you are sitting in or not sitting in. Or what board you serve on or don't serve on or what position you're in or not in. See, being free to trust God and to live out his, his ambition for your life is the freedom of humility. So, this morning as we close, I want to pray for us. Me included, okay? And I want to pray that we would learn the lesson that Paul teaches about what it means to be truly others-centered in our life because that is the second key besides being focused upon Christ to be focused upon others. So let's pray about that this morning. Lord, it's hard for me to care about others. 
it's a lot easier to care about myself. It's just easier to care about what I can accomplish and how I'm being recognized and how I compare. That's, let's just be honest, God, and maybe all of us just simply in our heads say amen to that. Because I'm so thankful in these verses and other places in Scripture, you've shown the way. If I exalt myself, I miss out on your best. But when I humble myself, Lord, I discover that you're able to give a strength and a power through depending on you that I do not and cannot have on my own. Because when my priorities are you first, God, others second, and myself third, even though that is countercultural, I can experience real joy in my life. Help me to not only believe that, but to live with these priorities and focus every day. God, thank you that as we commit ourselves to not only understanding, but doing your word. And as we understand that the Apostle Paul, while he could have joy in his life in the midst of his circumstances, and even though he was disappointed by other people, he understood that the priorities of you first, others second, himself third, helped him to live a life of joy in spite of circumstances and in spite of people that disappointed him. God, you've placed us here for a purpose and a mission. Our salvation is not just a ticket to heaven. It's what can possibly, if we will allow your spirit to work in our life, change us to realign our priorities to your priorities. That we can have the mind of Christ. And we can live our life in a way that we've never experienced before. We can live it with joy. So thank you this morning, God, for your word. For not only what it teaches us, but if, as we practice it and as we live with, within the context of it, what it will do in our lives. It will free us in miraculous ways. Help us to commit ourselves to doing just that. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.